This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Thank you. We'll be talking today um, with an expert on screen time and mental health. I'm sure most of you have wondered about whether the amount of screen time, whether it's on social media, video games, uh, anything else that you or your children uh, spend, whether it affects brain function. And it turns out it does sometimes quite severely. Um, what's an okay amount of time for children or adults to uh, be on screens? Um, my guest today is an expert in this area. Dr. Mary Burke is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist at the Sutter Pacific Foundation in uh, San Francisco. She works part of the time in a primary care clinic as liaison, psychiatric liaison to the um, practitioners there. She also works with women who are survivors of trauma and who are also trying to be parents at the same time. She's been working in the area of media and child development since 1999, well before there were nearly as many sources of it as there are now. Dr. Burke, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So um, let's start by talking about how serious um, this issue is. What are some of the things that can be affected in particularly uh, children as far as um, brain development, whether it's being able to think clearly or emotional regulation, where do you see these things showing up? Um, at this point, it almost always shows up when a patient comes into my office, especially in children. Um, I would say it's a rare, rare time where I don't have to talk about this, and I um, kind of group these very generically into a couple of different categories. Um, in adults, uh, particularly in adults who are um, older, retired, or disability, uh, staying home and watching TV or um, surfing the Internet becomes uh, a, a, a way of giving up on other things. Mm -hmm. um, young adults, I, I call it the millennial disease, where I see um, young people who were diagnosed mistakenly um, in either high school or college with ADHD, and when I was training, ADHD caused clinically significant impairment before the age of seven, and these are often uh, young people who had perhaps a developmentally normal period of high anxiety or depression, which mm -hmm. could have been treated with therapy, but instead they were put on medications, including stimulants, and never learned adequate coping skills and who um, spend their free time online or with their friends um, up all night and often get into the cycle where they're playing games late at night or watching TV, they get poor sleep, they're less functional at work, um, and then they start to get in trouble at work and they diagnose themselves with ADHD and come in 
looking for a stimulant um, and have never had anybody really talk them through their basic self-care and mental hygiene. Mm-hmm. So that's a very common one. Do you and find that um, someone who is ADHD a separate risk factor for also getting into more screen use, kind of from the other direction? Well, I, I would say that a number of studies have shown that people who had ADHD before being to screens are at an increased risk, and that's not surprising that can be more at risk for other addictive substances. And mm-hmm. if you think about ADHD, who want, who need a higher level of um, reward for getting stuff done, basically. Uh-huh. Um, and so video games and television give a high level of dopamine stimulation for little effort. Mm-hmm. And these are um, often in the days before television might be out running around, climbing trees, doing, you know, high level exciting things. And now, um, because it quiets them down, they're often put in front of the screen and that works the time that screen in the moment the screen is turned off, parents report that their behavior completely deteriorates. And yeah, that's yeah. for all kids, but it's even more marked for kids with ADHD. And that would be somewhat similar to uh, an addiction where you're taken away from whatever your reward substance or behavior is, and there's an emotional and, and uh, kind of a withdrawal reaction, a protest that, wait a minute. I want more of that. You know, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense. So in terms of um, kind of age-specific risks, what about uh, if a child is three, and I see this in my office, when the younger sibling of uh, the patient may be 10, but the three-year-old is given the tablet with a movie on it, so he or she'll be quiet while mom's talking with me about the 10-year-old. Um, is, that, is that an age that kids shouldn't be that close to and, and involved with tablets or phones, whatever? Uh, the way I try to explain this to parents, keeping it simple, is think of these things as caffeinated beverages. Mm. And so you're, you're never going to give your baby a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi. Now, you might give your three-year-old with you in the room, you might have a little tea party with very watery tea and milk. Um, but you're sure not going to let that three-year-old drink, you know, five-hour energy. So, you know, things can be used safely with adult supervision and moderation. The problem in the situation you mentioned is if the kid's only way of distracting themselves is with a screen, it becomes the only way they can distract themselves. And this is yeah. an age when, on a neurological and developmental level, children should be really digging into basic skill sets, and that can include um, they should be learning how to look at picture books, string letters together, doing puzzles, playing memory games. I um, remember my own kids at three and four pretty much being able to beat me at certain kinds of card memory games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of kids nowadays don't have those basic fine motor skills. They can't play cat's cradle. They're not very good at jump roping. Um, and their parents can't remember 
what it's like to entertain a child without a screen. So to me, that's very serious in terms of developmental losses. Again, mm-hmm. you know, once in a while, if you want to let your child watch a child-safe movie with you in the room chatting with them, that's one thing, um, yeah. or as an emergency measure. But as a steady diet, you know, you don't give your child chocolate cake three times a day. You save it for birthday parties. Yeah, and I think that very much the uh, kids who say, I'm bored, um, instead of saying, well, go outside or, gee, there are a lot of things, you know, games here or something you can do that are not screen, but it's easy to say, well, you know, you could watch a movie, whether it's on TV or on your laptop and YouTube or things. And I think kids tend to gravitate to that partly because they see others doing it. Maybe they see mom doing it. Um, Absolutely. Also, (laughs) kids are stupid. So if they know, if they say, I'm bored, they get to watch TV, why shouldn't they just keep saying, I'm bored? Because what that, you know, if they're like little, I will say your children are like puppies. You've just rewarded their behavior with the most desirable treat you could possibly give them. So that Mm -hmm. will just guarantee that the next time the kid uh, is around you, he'll say, I'm bored. So um, it's a very potent dopamine um, releaser, and lots of studies Mm -hmm. show that um, video games, for example, uh, light up the dopamine system, but that after a while there's a habituation in heavy users. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's an indication of addiction. And dopamine, just to um, let my listeners know, is a neurotransmitter that when it gets to an area in the brain we call the reward center, that feels good. You want to somehow keep that going. Um, And the same amount of stimulation pretty soon doesn't give you as much dopamine, so you need more. And that's where things get off to the races. More and also in the case of the screen media, more stimulating. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and the other important part about the dopamine system is that it pairs that dopamine reward with motor behavior. So it's a way of reinforcing uh, survival motor behavior. So any addictive substances in the computers and screens included um, fools the brain into thinking that clicking that button is necessary for survival, which Uh, is why people get physical discomfort when their dopamine source is taken away from them. Nice cigarette smokers want some kind of hand-mouth activity, um, or why, uh, you know, a, a recovered addict will get a craving to go into the bar where he used to drink or to the corner where he used to buy drugs. It's mm-hmm. a pairing of reward motor behavior. But, but again, if we think about the importance of critical windows of development, from zero to five and during adolescence are the times that the brain is best at learning new things. That's when the synapses are most active. Mm-hmm. So if what the child is exposed to in those critical windows is mostly screen media, that's a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Both so things that are getting left out. Um, that is correct. In a yeah, very like way. imaginary play, whether it's inside or outside, or playing with blocks or any other kind of puzzle figures. Um, I'm always happy when kids tell me, yeah, playing with Legos is my favorite thing to do. 
Great. Yes, I, I agree that those three-dimensional activities, and a number of studies have shown that it's a heavy exposure to screen media, and this started in the days when it was reduced children's capacity for imaginary play. Um, imagination is really the sort of forerunner of complex problem solving. So if that's taken away from children, as adults, they're more likely to get demoralized in the mm-hmm. face of life's adversity. Um, you know, I started noticing it, and this is, again, back in 1990 in my playroom. I, I had a sand tray with a beautiful collection of toys, and the children would come into the room and look at my wild animals and say, well, where's Simba? Because um, they wanted the Disney character. Yeah. And uh, so they could no longer conceptualize um, these sort of imaginary lions. They were already mm-hmm. coded for them. Needing that one. Yeah, I, um, some kids, I have a set of, they're like Legos, but they're much bigger and they're foam blocks. So it doesn't hurt brother when sister throws it at them. Um, and many kids are lining them up, building things, and other families I come out. And two kids and mom are each on their phones. Hopefully not texting mm-hmm. each other, but at least they're just sitting there on the phone and not doing that imaginary or fun play with the, the blocks. Um, maybe I should have a sign on the way in, please turn off your cell phone. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I bring in big piles of children's books and leave them in my waiting room. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And books of mazes and color books. My, this is just a personal anecdote. My son had asthma, so we spent a lot of times in waiting rooms and ERs. And I always took a book. And he said to me recently, he's all grown up now, is he, he had kind of fond memories of sitting in doctor's offices while I read things like Harry Potter. Or uh-huh fairy tales um, so it, and, and that made it less scary for him and mm-hmm. um, so the, these capacities for self-soothing and for uh, what the cognitive um, neuroscientists call intersubjectivity gets lost and remember devices are designed to be personal not shared yeah. all right. those right. of families looking at screens together that's very rarely happens. It's all about personalization. And the more we personalize, the less we engage each other in this process of intersubjectivity, which has to do with mirror neurons and the frontal lobes where our executive function and empathy sit. And mm-hmm. if those lobes aren't developed, um, we become lonely and, again, unhappy. And that's also the parent showing the example of we're gonna we're gonna put our phones down. We're gonna turn off phones, or whatever. Um, collect them and put them all in the, the glove box. When the parent conveys to the child, "I am interested in you and your thoughts," that's a neurological act. There's a, a good quote I often use when I speak by Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was one of the absolute pioneering psychologists. He was at Stanford and died. I think in the last decade, who talked about how um, unresponsive environments have the potential to trigger an alternate genetic pathway that can lead to psychopathology. And so my question, and this really has to be looked at in detail, 
and, and this looks pretty true, for example, for neglectful or abusive parents. Uh -huh. um, and it certainly was the case, for example, for children who are raised in orphanages where they have no access to moving around or playing. Um, but the question is whether parents who are absorbed in their own phones or devices are similarly unresponsive to their children, and that has a potential to trigger an alternative pathological developmental pathway. Uh, and, you know, some well-demonstrated examples include field experiments with the still face, where mothers were instructed not to smile back at their babies. Mm. When babies look at their mothers and they smile and look cute and the mother doesn't respond, babies work harder to get that response, and if mother still doesn't respond, they get very upset, and then they lapse into this on kind of depressed state. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I would wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about uh, the development of empathy, um, which is difficult to teach or figure out how it's um, how it's developed. But it sounds like that's something that would develop as a consequence or part of person-to-person -person interaction but it would be affected because you don't get empathetic interacting with your phone. Um, I think that's very important. You know, there's a, a beautiful writer named Dan Spiegel who's at UCLA who has written a lot of beautiful books about parenting and this concept of intersubjectivity or connecting emotionally and mentally with the people you love. And, his, and I'm, I'm sorry, your, your uh, word broke up a little bit. Dan Spiegel? Siegel, S-I-E-G-A-L at UCLA. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, S-I-E-G-E-L at UCLA. Okay. Who's written about um, empathy between parents and children and mm. uh, this concept of intersubjectivity that has to do with looking at each other's face. As you know, children learn about their emotions by reading their parents' expression, their parents' facial expressions, and um, that these loops of communication start non-verbally, um, and then they expand as children say more and parents help the, that uh, verbal expression grow. And Previously, this was also called affect attunement and considered to be an essential part of healthy emotional and cognitive development. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so studies, you know, no surprise, show that when parents are disconnected in this way, it's, um, it's hard on children and has potential mental health consequences. So whether we now have these devices which interfere with that parent-child communication, I think is very serious. I had an experience walking around in my neighborhood uh, not long ago where first I pa passed a parent who was looking at his phone while pushing a child who stared sort of apathetically out of the world, clearly alert. Mm -hmm. um, and then right after that, passed a mom carrying a child, same age, you know, probably around 10 months, and they were singing a song together, and the child was vividly animated and kind of, you know, excited. Now... Sure, it was just a snapshot. Um, maybe it was just a bad moment in the first parent's day. But it was clear to me how um, how different that child's day-to-day -day experience might be. Yeah, yeah. And, and that may certainly be something that parents don't even know 
they're modeling or how much it can affect um, their children and uh, certainly that the fact that developing emotional um, responsiveness and also just being able to know emotions and, and uh, learn about them comes from facial recognition. It's not reading about it. It's not just talking about it or watching someone from afar, but that facial recognition in that zero to five age range, that's Absolutely. where the foundation is set. Um, and, you know, there's um, some great studies, and I think this comes out of the University of Washington and Dimitri Christakis, showing that um, when parents, when the TV is on, parents talk less to their children. Children have smaller vocabulary. So there's some real learning issues going on. Uh-huh. And, so um, I, I think some um, people may think of, well, you're, listening to the TV or you're reading something on the internet or even it's a spoken movie, you're going to be learning language there, but it's different. Yes, it's different because children learn language by pairing lips, <laughs> lip movement uh. with sounds. And the things that happen on the screen are usually too fast. Um, and often if they're cartoons, then obviously the mouth movements are abnormal. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it, you know, learning language is an integrated sensory experience. And, and I, children who, who are deprived of that are going to have language problems. And I, uh, the article I read that um, introduced me to your work mentioned, uh, and I don't mean to, to knock any specific TV shows, but uh, that one very popular one that I can still remember my son watching 20 years ago, um, moves very fast. It's uh, both fast language and fast pace, and that uh, kind of scrambles things for kids, particularly younger ones. So they actually are not benefiting, but they're having negative consequences from watching this at age three and four. Well, so here's what um, I think. Here's what the recommendations are. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics started with zero screens from zero to two. I, I think that's still useful, despite the fact that they rolled it back to 18 months. I think um, no screens until children are talking. That makes sense to me until they're able to uh -huh. bring a couple words together, or even better, until they're talking and potty trained, because there's nothing like that to motivate kids to start using the potty. Yeah. But um, you know, I, I the not a shocker. It's okay for children to Skype with their parents so they stay connected when their parents are traveling. That's hard to argue with. Obviously, yeah. if that's the only form of connecting with your child you're still not going to be very connected. So there's always a risk that people assume that's good enough. And it's, it's okay, but it's not as good as the real thing. Mm -hmm. Then, um, you know, then there do need to be limits. And I think, um, I think, for instance, Sesame Street was deleterious to vocabulary at under two, not so bad over two. Um, but to think about for a lot of children's TV shows is they are high activity and as you pointed out to use up that early you need to keep upping the ante so if children are watching sort of high volume high action violent cartoons at three and four they're going to be moving up to even more things so content really matters uh, with children and, and, that, and even 
things that may not even be cartoon violence, but they're still moving fast, that's not going to be as healthy as certainly reading a book or Absolutely. looking at picture books, things like that. Or running around outside and you know, yeah. money, whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and um, and then you know the other thing we we've talked about is the re- <laughs> actually the one of my least least contented clientele are ten year old boys when I tell them that their parents that they can't play Grand Theft Auto or other violent video games. Boy, There's yeah. Ample ample evidence that when um, boys are exposed to sort of sexual violence on TV and video games, it increases what we call sexual callousness. Where they're mm-hmm. less likely to take to object to sexual violence towards women, so that's a very serious issue um, and needs to be closely monitored. And then, you know, teenagers are the other major risk group, and I think that's a massive problem that needs m- needs much more attention from the child psychiatry community than it's gotten. I, I think that's it's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. Both in terms of, and you know, people would say, oh, well, it's just. Facebook, that's a way I uh, connect with my friends. There's one uh, patient of mine, I think she's about 14, and she basically comes home from school, goes into her bedroom, and yes, she's interacting with friends, someone in South Korea and uh, someone else uh, in Denmark, but that's all her interaction. It's not even necessarily face-to-face. Some of it is, but a lot of it's on chat or Facebook back and forth and I try to point out that yes you know these people and learning about them but that's not the same as learning how to relate to people that's correct and um, and the, the thing is being part of a true social uh, you know a live social network and not a virtual one means learning how to compromise learning how to tolerate distress learning how to say no appropriately and to stand up for oneself and children who are particularly naturally shy um, and for whom that would be hard might well be at risk for using the internet as a substitute and never gain the skills they need and it's a conversation I have a lot with teenage girls knowing that I can't just outlaw it by the time they're teenagers and it's not worth driving a wedge between them and their parents, especially if there's already a wedge. But what I can do is really help kids and parents think about what did you stop doing? What are you good at? What do you like to do? And really make that a top priority so that kids are picking up on, you know, sports or adventure activities Uh or... Or, you know, listening to audiobooks. <laughs> you know, I say people, a lot of people, teenagers say they like to have a TV show while they're falling asleep. I say, well, let's get rid of the screen, which emits blue light, and go get yourself some Harry Potter audiobooks and listen to those or some other comforting, familiar story. Yeah, I, I uh, think parents are almost as horrified as children when I say, There should be no TVs in the bedroom. Your phone ought to be off and in a drawer or under mom's bed charging or something. And parents almost think, wait a minute, you mean I can't watch my late night TV program? And kids say, no, how do I know? um, How can I talk with so-and-so? Well, at 11 o'clock at night is not the time to um, 
chat back and forth or text? You know, I, so a lot of times I think people are only going to change their behavior when the costs become, become high. Yeah. So once they're in my office, um, it's clear that there's a major problem. I just make a big deal out of it until um, until everybody gets it. And mm -hmm. again, people won't even admit that I'm right. They'll just be doing something else and report that, oh, yeah, yeah, I do feel better. Mm -hmm. um, I will say with my young adult patients, my um, my misdiagnosed adult onset ADHD patient, <laughs> uh, I have one yeah. patient who calls it Apple onset attention disorder. Um, <laughs> yeah, adult onset is certainly a misnomer or a mischaracterization. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So a lot of them are they're like, sure, I've been unhappy, I'm sick of these awful drugs, they make me feel sick, let's give it a try. And they feel better. And particularly those who've been in private practice treatment, they're paying out of pocket, they're like, nobody ever told me this, and I saw this guy for three years, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, that this is... Um, how, how could somebody not have made this an issue beforehand? So um, with my adult patients, my younger adult patients, I usually have pretty easy time making the case. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of us in um, medical practice and certainly those of us who got into practice well after or well before iPhones and Facebook and everything else uh, aren't aware of how pervasive a problem it is and how serious it is particularly in the brain development stages of young childhood and, and uh, teenagers. That's um, correct. So, and we're at the end of our time, so um, we'll maybe uh, continue this conversation at some time in the future. My guest has been Dr. Mary Burke, who is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, and also an expert in the intersection of screen media and mental health problems. Dr. Burke, so nice to be able to talk with you and have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for your interest. Good luck. Okay, thank you. And to my listeners, um, the takeaways here are setting limits on screen use and getting your kids outside, get them puzzles, coloring books, other things than watching TV or uh, staying quiet by getting into a screen. That's how you can truly help your children uh, in their emotional and um, thinking development. So until next time, be well. And this is Dr. David Pomeroy signing off for ADHD Focus.